Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two clones. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, unnamed trading firms who are very involved. Um, Alec.eth is the ultimate possible. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. Quick intros. First, we've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and the czar of Superstate. New intro for, for Robert, who we'll be talking about it today. Uh, then we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And today we've got a special guest, Blake, the real-world asset ringleader at Goldfinch. Oh, I like that. And then that. finally, you've got myself. I'm Hasib, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. Blake, welcome to the show. Uh, we are going to do, for the first time ever, a real-world asset show because crypto has gotten so boring and so uncool that we decided we finally... And I'm, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We had, um, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's big news that Robert announced the launch of his new company, Superstate, uh, which we, uh, we want to dive into a little bit on the show. Uh, but we thought it was a good opportunity to dive not just into what Robert's doing, but the broader landscape of real-world assets. And we thought there was no better person to bring on board than Blake, who's been you know, kind of an OG in the real-world asset space and has been at it for a while. Blake, maybe we could sort of start off with you giving an introduction about yourself and Goldfinch, what it is, and, and what got you into the realm of real-world assets. Uh, yeah, sure. So first off, thanks so much for having me on the show. Uh, big fan. And in terms of a quick background on myself, I... Uh, used to work at Coinbase as an engineer uh, back in 2018 and left in 2020 to start, uh, start Goldfinch, which is uh, a private credit platform built fully on Ethereum. Everything happens fully on chain. And from the very beginning, we've been excited about doing you know, what was now been real world assets, RWA. And uh, we, we were just, you know, at the time, I think, and, and, and still largely, you know, crypto is a, you know, mostly kind of self-referential landscape, right? And we felt like we really needed to kind of break out of the matrix. And we were just really excited about bringing the value of crypto to real businesses who were doing real stuff and maybe didn't have to already do with crypto. And so that's what we've been doing since 2020, largely doing private credit lending to businesses in emerging markets, but also we have about 20% of the portfolio in America. And so uh, that's that's the thing. And I, I think your world assets is really the place where crypto has to go in order to, to grow in my mind. So let me, let me just step back a bit and define real-world assets, because maybe for us, it's kind of, you know, we know exactly what we're talking about. The history of real-world assets in crypto goes back a very long time. Like, I remember when I first got into the space, people were talking about real-world assets. And at that time, it was like asset tokenization and, and you know, the kind of the terms have evolved over time. I, as far as I know, the first real-world asset to get tokenized and still the largest real-world asset on chain is dollars, right? So technically, every single stable coin, except for algorithmic on-chain stable coins, are basically real world assets. There's dollars in a bank. They're in the real world. That's why we call them real world assets. There's something off chain that's being represented on chain. So some kind of claim or some kind of, you know, kind of monetary equivalence between what's happening off chain and what's happening on chain. 
Um, and then I remember there were things like Digix, which was an early attempt to uh, tokenize gold. Uh, Tether has, has tokenized various other assets. Like I think they had silver, they have, you know, other uh, non-USD currencies, but for the most part, and then of course, in I remember in twenty um, the 2017 cycle, then again in the 2021 cycle, a lot of excitement around, okay, can we tokenize real estate? Can we tokenize other kinds of assets like apartment complexes and boats and you know all sorts of things that maybe people might want liquidity for? And I think we've talked about on the show that I think in the past, there's been some magical thinking, I think on behalf of a lot of people around asset tokenization. The idea that if I tokenize something, then magically it will become liquid. And there were a lot of companies that kind of got uh, got funded and kind of drove this excitement of this idea that like, wow, you know, crypto trades 24 seven crypto, you know, anybody can buy and sell at any given time. Uh, there are a lot of real world assets like real estate that are really painful to uh, transfer or to sell or to, you know, there's all these documents they take forever. They don't work on weekends. And it's like, wow, can we bring the crypto magic or the on-chain blockchain software based intermediation to all these traditional businesses? And I think this led to uh, a lot of unrealistic expectations. A lot of people getting disappointed. They're like, hey, why hasn't there been more progress? It seems like still today, by far the largest market is dollars um, and not a lot else is working. So Robert, let me bring you in. Tell us about, okay, that, that's kind of where we are. I don't know if you disagree with that uh, characterization. Tell us what led you to be like, cool, I'm going to go do Superstate. Sure. So I'll start by saying that I hate the term real world assets because I don't think it describes the opportunity. So it also insults all of the assets in crypto that are crypto native assets. So I like to segment the world into two camps, one in which assets are issued on the blockchain for the first time. That's where they live. That's where they were created. Ether is a great example. It lives on a blockchain. It doesn't live in like a database or a spreadsheet or something like that. All the tokens issued on Ethereum are crypto native assets. And then you have traditional assets, which are issued on other ledgers, spreadsheets, physical paper, you know, old-ass database software, things written in COBOL, whatever. Crypto-native, and then traditional assets. Everything exists in the real world, in my opinion. So I don't like to use the term, but, you know, I, I know a lot of people in crypto do use that term. But I just like to segment it real quickly between crypto-native and things that are not native to blockchains. So what got me excited was actually the opposite of excitement. Uh, it actually goes back to 2017 when I started compound, you know, in 2017, I thought that by 2022, five years later, the whole world was going to be tokenized. You know, I remember when I pitched VCs in like 2017, I was like, oh man, you know, by 2022 in five years, everything's going to live on the blockchain. And so a market like Compound or Uniswap or whatever, you know, would be able to interact with all of these incredible assets we, where you could build one system, something like compound or something like Uniswap or something like, you know, any protocol. And eventually more and more things would become interoperable. With it. There'd be more assets. Eventually it would handle stocks. Eventually it would handle bonds. Eventually it would handle commodities, you know, whatever. And that never really occurred because not that many things came on chain um, from off of the blockchain. Dollars, incredible use case, incredible product market fit. You know, we've seen you know, $150 billion plus at given points of stable coins. Obviously, there's a lot of demand for that, and the invisible hand really pulled it onto the blockchain. But that, that's pretty much the only thing that's migrated over so far. What, you know, we have seen early signs of life for are things moving the other way, things moving off-chain, right? And I'm really excited to talk with Blake about this. But like when I look at Maker, when I look at Goldfinch, a lot of times it's wealth from the blockchain getting sent to something not on the blockchain. And like kind of like this 
opposite direction migration. Um, obviously, it builds a much more unified system, and it's incredibly important and incredibly exciting and incredibly powerful. But it's oftentimes dollars moving the other way. You know, like MakerDAO now has all of these, you know, real-world assets or RWAs, but it's dollars moving away from the blockchain, away from the crypto nativity, not onto it. It's kind of like this, like, right, reverse migration in a sense. And so, you know, the thing that got to me was saying, well, it's been now six years, right? I originally thought it was going to be five years and everything would live on a blockchain. It's been six years. Nothing besides a simple dollar actually exists over here. And what can we do to help facilitate this migration? And so- Well, hold on, Robert. Let me, let me, let me pause you there real quick. Why do you think that is? What's your theory of the case of why other things haven't migrated onto the blockchain? Well, I think it's a supply and demand problem. So I, I think this is really like the invisible hand of markets, not- getting people excited enough because like when there's enough demand, when there's enough of a pain point, when there's enough excitement, it will happen. People will figure it out. The one thing that has gotten people like moving, so to speak, are stable coins. Like there is a clear demand for stable coins. There's clear product market fit. That is a use case where the market ushered it into existence because so many people around the world demanded it or wanted it. I think when it comes to things like, you know, tokenized real estate, the demand is like microscopic still, right? There's very few people who are like, man, I'd kill for that skyscraper to live on the blockchain. It's incredibly cool. Doing it is like, you know, achievement unlocked. But I don't know how many people demand it. I don't know how much like capital demands it. I don't know how big the invisible hand is that wants to will it into existence. It's super cool. <laughs> but how much like capital demand is there for that? I don't know. It has, I don't think it's very high. And I think that's one of the reasons why we haven't seen, you know, more of this succeed. I might also add, I think there's a lot of just like regulatory issues, especially for public assets to come on chain, right? Like, you know, sort of like whatever the thing in crossing the chasm where they talk about like total cost of ownership. There's like the cost of actually using the product, but there's sort of the total cost of ownership that goes outside of the product, which, you know, for a lot of these funds and especially wealthier individuals or family offices who might be buying this, this type of asset. Well, there's also like, well, how does the accounting work? And like, do I still get the same tax treatment? And like, this headache and brain damage of having to think about blockchain assets, I think is just too much for a lot of that stuff to have migrated over so quickly. And I think that's another piece that just needs to get figured out before we're going to see the, like, the mass migration in my mind. But it's also true for USDC, isn't it? That like USDC, at least I think until recently, I don't know if that has changed at all, but like it's not treated as a currency for, for tax purposes, correct? Yeah, yeah. I think, I, the US. I, I think the and the demand has largely come from crypto native people who probably don't need to think about all those same issues. Like they just go on Coinbase and they you know send in their dollars, they mint USDC and they go up, go about their day. Right. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And can't hold it. I don't think. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So so for, g- given that starting place, um, the two of you pursued different directions of which real world assets are the most interesting markets to pursue. Uh, Robert, let's start with we kind of your story for oh, Superstate. Can I? Oh, go ahead, I'll add one thing. Disclosure is that Robert and I are small investors in Goldfinch. I realize we didn't didn't say that. Yeah, so. good disclosure. Anything cool. we see may be very, very slightly biased. And will be used against you. Yeah. All right. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead, Robert. Uh, so okay. yeah, tell why why given this backdrop, why Superstate? Yeah. So, you know, in trying to solve this problem of like why haven't things come on chain for the most part, you know, we're starting with the idea that it's because you have to go to where the demand is. And where we see the demand right now are for not just dollars to come on chain, but low risk, highly liquid sources of yield to come on chain and in a massive scalable way. Where we sit, you know, we think that 
treasuries and T-bills and short-term, you know, extremely high-quality instruments are what people want to hold on blockchains. And so what we're trying to facilitate is just the path for um, these types of assets to come onto the blockchain, not for the dollars that were on the blockchain to go off-chain and then buy them, but for those assets in a regulatory structure to come onto the blockchain. So what we're doing is we're spending a lot of time focused on the legal and regulatory process to bring these assets on chain because that's where we think the demand is. And over time, as there's more and more global demand for additional assets on chain, whether it's real estate or commodities or whatever, fill in the blank, ideally there's a path to bring those assets on chain as well. And so, you know, really it's a fund creation business with a structure that enables those funds to become crypto. Okay. So, I mean, I get it. Rates are north of 5%. A lot of people, you know, probably everybody in this thing included, we have, we have some money, you know, uh, getting short-term interest from the government. You got, you are not the first to do this, right? So there's Ondo Finance, which is the largest, I think uh, that's kind of purely DeFi oriented. There's Franklin Templeton has some on chain thing on Stellar, I think, uh, or something. I'm not totally totally certain. Maple has one. Yeah, I was going to say, the, uh, this is being discussed on Twitter today, but the Franklin Temple thing is actually bigger than Ondo, which is like By very like counterintuitive. Two, almost 2x. Yeah. It's, like, it's, it's actually like, kind of like crazy. 300 million in like money market ETF yeah. tokens on, on Stellar. Um, you, you should so. actually, may, maybe you can show the rwa.xyz slash treasuries uh, if you want to see yeah, that. Yeah, and so to be clear, if you want to, to, the process right now, if you want to own one of these is you need to like go whitelist your address, you need KYC, whitelist your address, and then you can go and buy these treasuries and you get some yield on Stellar or if in the case of Ondo on Ethereum. Um, can, you, can you zoom in a bit, Tom? Because I, I think it's pretty hard yeah. to read. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, Franklin Templeton, Ondo, um, Matrix Stock, which really is, is actually Matrix Ports um, uh, product, STPT. It's like tokenized treasuries. Maple has this pool. And I think this this site is slightly off in that they count Flux Finance, which is Ondo's compound fork. So it's a money market they, that they built that is um, whitelisted for Ondo products. So you can take your tokenized um, money market ETF that you've you know onboarded uh, and, and purchased through Ondo put it into flux and then borrow against it at a rate that is pretty attractive. I mean, you're paying like, you know, half of, you know, margin rates on like a traditional brokerage. And, you know, these people are also getting, you know, yield if you just put USDC in and and you're not buying the treasuries. So you're not, this is not actually tokenized treasuries, but it's being lent against um, tokenized treasuries in flux. I think something kind of interesting about it too, I believe that whole kind of market is partly there because the rates on compound were like lower than what was getting paid out on on notes. People, I think, were basically leveraging that capital and then lending it into Flux, who then bargains and buy more on treasuries. Right, so there's an interest rate arbitrage that once people have access to, to uh, treasury yield, they can use that, they can borrow against you know, stable coins and basically increase demand for stable coins on chain, which pushes up the interest rates on stable coins and pushes them closer to parity. Obviously, they're not going to get exactly to parity, but it does mean that the rate on stable coins should get closer to that risk-free rate which is not really possible when you don't have treasuries on chain at all. Now, the treasuries on chain right now, the order it's on the order of like a few hundred million, right? Maybe 500 million yeah. if you aggregate everything. A little over 100 themselves. Okay. Yeah, and then Franklin Templeton is like, you know, close to 300 or something like that. So right now, the outstanding supply of stable coins, obviously in the tens of billions, it's a massive, massive amount of stable coins out there. So there, there is no way right now, just with the differential and how many treasuries are out there, to actually do the interest rate arbitrage and push 
the uh, the yield on on stable coins up. But okay, there are a lot of people doing this. Robert, what are they doing wrong? Why why do you need to come in and and fix what these people the mistakes these people are making? Yeah. So and. The first thing to say is that there's obviously room for many different approaches and many different companies, right? Like there's both Vanguard and Fidelity, and both of them are managing trillions upon trillions of dollars, right? It's not that anyone's doing anything wrong, but we're just taking an approach that's slightly different. So there's really two th- names you've already mentioned, Franklin Templeton and Ando. Superstate's somewhere in the middle of the two of these. So Franklin Templeton is going the route of creating registered investments where they file a prospectus and then it's available to be purchased by anybody. Ando is going a different route where they're relying on exemptions from registration and saying, you know, you have to be a qualified purchaser, which means you have to have $5 million to purchase their fund. Ando is super Ethereum native. Franklin Templeton is on Stellar. Superstate is kind of the hybrid of these two approaches where it's a registered approach where we're creating of registered investment. We submitted a draft prospectus, a preliminary prospectus to the SEC about two weeks ago. So it's a registered approach, not an exemption from registration so that it can be held by anybody. The goal is to be a very Ethereum native on-chain component. And so it's kind of in the middle of those two. And, and we believe that that's something that the market is going to want, which is something that you know has a clear registration statement and is Ethereum native as sort of the best of both worlds. And we'll see how it plays out over the next couple months, years, decades. But that's the approach in a nutshell. And Robert, actually, I'm curious, what kind of uh, access is going to be possible on this fund? Who, who can purchase it? Yeah, U.S. investors or offshore investors with U.S. addresses. Retail investors? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so basically anybody who can buy a mutual fund today, they can they can uh, buy a stake in, in the super stake fund. Um, but, you know, a smart contract or an AI or a DAO or whatever, they would not be able to to directly own Superstate, the Superstate Mutual Fund. All right, so let me let me take a step back. So I think I think we understand the approach. Let me ask kind of a, a broader philosophical question: Is like, why is it good to have more tokenized treasuries on chain? Uh, and maybe let's just start there. And like, I kind of want to dig into this discussion because I think it's actually quite interesting. Uh, why, Robert? Why is it why is it good to bring tokenized treasuries on chain? Well, if you zoom out and look super abstractly, why is it good to have a blockchain? at all, right? Like, <laughs> Wait, is that, is that where we're yeah. starting? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah let's, start, let's start really low, right? Okay, cool. So really foundational, I think having assets that are administered and owned and tracked on blockchains is better than traditional ledgers. It's better than the stack that they currently reside in in TradFi. Because in the end run, you're able to get more from them. You're able to get all of the composability of DeFi, you're able to get all of the automation of smart contracts, you're able to get the transparency of a blockchain where every action that's ever occurred is auditable, plus the programmable open source nature of it. You're able to get the instant settlement, you're able to get the massive like speed and portability advantages over prior ledgers, right? Having things on a blockchain is super, super good, right? And so having the old assets, the TradFi assets, move over and start to live on the blockchain more and more and more over time is just overall going to be a net benefit for society, for investors, for regulators, for everybody. Okay, I can also add a little, little color later because I actually talked to the Franklin Templeton people um, months back. We, we were actually kind of looking to do a, a treasuries product as well at Goldfinch. And um, we talked to the Franklin Templeton. They had actually, they spent like quite a long time getting the SEC comfortable 
with this fund. They started a while ago. For them, it was actually originally sort of like almost a science experiment. They were just like, hey, let's do something on the blockchain. This was like years ago when the rates were still zero and they didn't really expect anybody to use it. Um, but they were like, well, let's go through the whole process because it takes quite a while to register the fund. Anyway, they, they spent all this time and like they were talking to SEC. SEC said, well, how are we going to like subpoena you for records? And they're like, it's right here. Like, it's right there. You just need to look at it. <laughs> and they also told me that once they actually been running this for a while, their actual cost of operating the fund are substantially lower from what it costs them to administer a traditional fund. So I think that's how the Robert is talking about is, is spot on. And we have some evidence already of that from Franklin Templeton, at least you know, from the phone calls I had with them a couple months ago. Interesting. Let me let me maybe um, propose a counterpoint that I was I was just thinking about actually while I was um, taking a shower this morning when we were preparing for the show is that so right now in DeFi right like so we talked about this interest rate arbitrage it's not really being done yet because there just there aren't enough tokenized treasuries on chain um, when this interest rate arbitrage successfully happens and the rates on chain go up another way of thinking about that is that you know uh, you know what the Fed has been doing for the last two years is they've been raising interest rates. And because they've been raising interest rates, you know, they've been kind of crushing investment. I mean, we're all VCs. We're all investing less. You know, the, the incentive to take risk, incentive to innovate, all that stuff goes down because it gets crowded out by basically just, you know, government paper, right? And so effectively what the government is saying is invest less, take less risk, uh, and instead just give your money to me and I'll hold on to it and like cool down the economy. And so when you are bringing more tokenized treasuries on chain, basically what you're doing is you're raising the on-chain interest rate, right? You are basically playing that intercessory role of like bridging what the Fed is doing in the real economy and bringing it to the on-chain economy and telling the on-chain economy, hey, invest less, slow down, don't invest so much in growth, uh, and instead put your money with the U.S. government and just have it sit there and kind of do nothing because we want to slow down the economy. This is going to make yield farming more expensive. It's going to make token issuances or like token emissions more expensive. Is that not going to, yeah, it may bring more tokenized treasures on chain and maybe it's, oh, great, it's so efficient for you know, on-chain mutual funds for treasuries, but isn't that going to result in slowing down the rate of innovation on the blockchain? Or it'll speed it up because people have to create entirely new things. Yeah, I don't know if the rate of innovation is quite the right metric there to go with the, the interest rates going up because it's, it's taking quite a lot of innovation just to, just to do it. Yeah, but it, it, is, it is directly tied to the cost of capital, right? I mean, the cost of capital on-chain goes up. It's harder to get USDC to provide liquidity for a blah, blah, blah. I mean, you can argue whether that is innovation. I don't know, Tom, what's your I, take? I, th I think you're sort of <laughs> positioning this as either or, like either your assets are in treasuries or they're being you know deployed elsewhere, invested elsewhere. And I think, I actually kind of think, look at like staked ETH and liquid staking derivatives as sort of a comp um, of, you know, the ETH you know, uh, yield is basically you know, the risk-free rate, right? Like block emissions plus um, um, transaction fees. And that competes with everything else. So, hey, it's not super attractive to, you know, loan out my ETH for 1% when I can stake it and earn 4 or 5% or something like that. And that's true for everything, right? If I have my ETH sitting in like Blur waiting to bid on an NFT or if I have my ETH sitting in a DAO and, and you know, waiting to, you know, commission a proposal. And so instead, kind of the, the current trend actually is replacing ETH with um, liquid staking derivatives like staked ETH. And so the, the two sort of compose. So I can... Have my ETH, I can get my yield, and I can use it in all these different other you know places as well, where I might normally use vanilla ETH. And so instead, these these rates actually sort of compose with each other and complement each other. And so I think similarly, like we could probably see a similar thing with you know these tokenized treasuries or something like Flux USDC, where hey, if I'm you know using this as collateral to trade on some you know decentralized perps venue, I don't have to sacrifice the risk-free rate in order to trade perps. The two can actually sort of compose with each other. Yeah, I mean, I think another natural thing in that vein is that. 
yeah, staking derivatives didn't like completely crush everything else, right? There was still there's still enough liquidity in, in other assets. Like a lot of it definitely went away. I think the the bigger question is just more like how well can these high rates diffuse through the existing DeFi ecosystem, right? Like the real advantage of staking derivatives is they are basically more or less equivalent to ETH in DeFi from like the perspective of most of DeFi. There's really not a difference between ETH and a bunch of the staking derivatives. But the treasury assets are a little bit weirder, right? They they do have some restrictions. You have to go through this sort of indirect route of borrowing against them. Like, like there's clearly some friction to, to them diffusing through the ecosystem. And so that's the thing I think would be more interesting. I, I don't know if I buy the token emissions have to go up type of argument though, because what will end up happening is if fees are denominated in that, if those tokens have some claim to fees, well, if the rates went up and they have something where they're collecting fees denominated in that asset, they should be earning more too, right? Like, like I'm not saying it's perfectly, re- you know, reflexive in that sense, but there's a they should be if they're able to utilize those assets and charge fees in those assets terms, they should be at least earning some of the beta to the growth of that asset now. If the protocol is not able to do that, then that's different. But I think, like maybe from the perspective of innovation, that would be the part of innovation that probably would have to happen. Which is I, like, I, I love your assumption that uh, protocols charge fees. That's very, that's very, no, uh, no, 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 a very, no, very the, charming model of how the blockchain works. No, no, no. But the LPs, the LPs earn fees, right? And the LPs are also earning the farming asset. And so the, there's, there's sort of it's, it's not, it's not totally clear to me that. You have to overcome. In fact, you may have to compensate them less than the native token because they're getting more like raw rewards in the treasury asset that they're earning fees in. Right. If they're earning fees in FUSDC, it's like, I, I'm just saying, like, I, I don't think it's right. right. I mean, look, there, I, I think the reality, though, is that, like, look, if you're farming, you have to farm in stable coins because you need it to be open. And permissionless, right? Presumably. I mean, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe there's some world where no, you can be KYC and have on chain treasuries. Yeah, I think like, you know, there's a lot of people now launching like CDP platforms um, or, you know, basically forks of like, you know, liquidity or whatever that use liquid staking derivatives as collateral instead of Ether. And like, you know, those are quickly rising as like the dominant form of collateral. I think um, Aave is now over ETH. Maker's uh, Staked ETH is about to overtake ETH as like the main form of collateral. So, um, you know, the two can compose. And I think, you know, again, as long as you have players who sort of bridge these two markets, the rates should converge, right? Like you have something like, um, flux, you, you know, USDC, and you then you have the actual tokenized uh, treasuries themselves, and so yeah, they're not going to be on par, but you know anybody can go and use flux USDC to go do you know farming if they want, and in, in theory, they should all become you know more liquid over time. Yeah, I, I mean, another uh, sort of reverse experiment of the thing you're talking about is in 2021 when rates were basically zero and crypto rates were very high, and suddenly traditional finance people were able to access the crypto rates via centralized entities. Now, of course, that didn't work out the way they planned, but they were able to access it and they immediately went towards that. Uh, and it actually had sort of a this feedback loop effect. Some of it good, some of it bad, a lot of it bad. But I think you should expect the same thing. I, I, don't, I don't think there is... I, I think like at the end of the day, if, the, if an asset's really good collateral and taken everywhere and it has positive yield and negative carry and like low carry costs, like 
people gravitate to that, right? That's it. Well, so that's it's a very interesting point, Tarun, because you're sort of analogizing. Okay, well, you know, raising the rates on chain is kind of like what Terra was doing, of having these really high rates that are kind of pulling capital into crypto, and that capital then disseminates, and the cost of capital gets lower in crypto. That argument works if there's a differential between the interest rate off chain and the interest rate on chain, right? In this case, the interest rate on chain is actually lower than the interest rate off chain, and what the tokenized treasuries are doing is they're they're equalizing the interest rate across the two. My mental model of of capital on chain, and this might be this might be part of why I think we might um, be be looking at this differently. My mental model of capital off chain or sorry on chain is that there's really like two kinds of capital. There's opportunistic capital that is just looking for yield, and they're like you know just the kind of cutthroat hedge funds. They'll do whatever. And then there's like capital that's kind of stuck on chain, which is you know people in China who are you know they're just like look I want dollars and you know tether is the best way to hold those dollars and so that 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 capital is captive and they'll take whatever rate they can get so if their best rate is two percent on compound it's like great I'm gonna get two percent on compound I'm not gonna be able to KYC and get you know the five percent from Superstate so I'm just gonna I'm just gonna live with two percent so be it or maybe I'll take a little more risk and put it into private credit through Goldfinch but that capital isn't isn't moving right. And so that that kind of that black hole of pulling in more capital from off chain that Terra was doing, I, I think it's not likely we're going to see that just because we have tokenized treasuries on chain that those actors, you know, even if you live in Hong Kong, you can get access to treasury yield from Hong Kong. No problem. Right. This is not it's not something that you have to be in the U.S. to get access to. What do you what do you think of that take? Yeah, I I agree that there's there's some version of that that's true, but I I do think like suppose there's another bull run, ETH price goes up, suddenly the USD ETH staking rate looks significantly more attractive than Treasuries, but maybe I actually want to hold a portfolio that's like sixty forty ETH USD, but I don't want my USD portfolio to be only a carry cost for me. Effectively, I I, I do actually want to like be earning some nominal yield. This is a perfect product for that, right? And like my point is people rebalancing into the the bull and bears, they're not going to be like, I'm going out of ETH completely to stablecoin or vice versa. I, other than board apes owners, uh, they're not going to be kind of <laughs> uh, you know, doing that, right? They're gonna have this kind of in-between, but they kind of want yield on both sides. And I, I could I think it like makes the rebalancing costs actually a lot more palatable. You know, I, I sure. and, and like as these portfolios get larger, especially due to staking rewards kind of spreading through the ecosystem. You you definitely could imagine that this this has a a, a place as viable collateral to compete with USDC or, or Tether. So Blake, let's let's bring you in. Give us the case, you know, we talked about treasuries. Give us the case for private credit as being an attractive real world asset to bring on chain. Why yeah. private credit? <clears throat> yeah. So I think yeah, I think it's actually a good a good kind of compliment here because as Robert was saying, bringing these treasury yields on chain, that is I think everyone would agree that's largely a product for crypto native investors, right? For the people who are already on chain, because for the most part, you know, what Ando is doing, they're literally giving you a BlackRock ETF and they're adding 15 bips and then saying, here you go. Now you can buy it on chain. So people from the off chain world versus traditional finance, they're not going to be taking their dollars and bringing it on chain to buy the Ando product, generally speaking, I would think. I mean, as, a, as like a, I, this is my default case. However, uh, because that is also is very, very publicly available. It's really, really easy for anyone to try to, find to get access to their rate uh, already. Um, the private credit thing, on the other hand, is actually very hard to access, generally speaking, especially for a more like kind of normal everyday investor. It's very, very difficult to access. And so, you know, this is sort of the, the whole other end of the spectrum where it's, it's not public, it's very hard to access, and it's very bespoke too. 
And it takes sort of a lot of expertise to be able to uh, look at these deals and decide whether or not they're good or not. And so that's where like we actually, again, with like our whole, whole thing, we want to bring people who are outside the crypto space into the crypto realm. And so offering these private credit deals, you know, we want to bring investors who aren't already into crypto and, and bring them on chain through an act, through an asset. That can, can, can you give us an example of a private credit deal? Just so, I mean, a lot of people might oh, not know exactly yeah, what yeah, private yeah, credit yeah, means. Totally. So, uh, you know, really private credit is just doing lending to, to businesses by large. And so, you know, example of a borrower that uh, was on Goldfinch is a company called Payjoy. Uh, they do smartphone financing in, in Mexico. And so, you know, you buy a phone from them, they'll, they'll pay for it. And then you pay, pay them back over, you know, the next two years or whatever. And you do monthly installments. And if you don't pay back, they happen to have software on the phone that will shut off your phone. And so everyone wants their phone to work. People pay it back. Um, and so you can do that with tons of businesses all over the place. You know, that, that was a sort of specific uh, fintech lending business, but you can do it with you know, invoice receivables, uh, you can do it with real estate, you can do it with all, all kinds of stuff. Goldfinch tends to focus on fintech lenders as, as our main borrowers, but that's, that's just a, the rough idea of, of private credit. And private credit as asset class, by the way, has just been growing like crazy. And this is, I would say, generally a really exciting time for private credit because as the rates go up, that actually pushes up, that's like the floor of rates that every business in the world needs to pay. And so all of the rates that everyone is paying have gone up by basically four or five percent in the last couple of years. And so you have really high quality companies offering, you know, 10 percent plus yield. And of course, that is going to take on more risk than going to the treasuries. But it's also much higher yield. You're not talking about 10 percent plus. And in a world where the stock market is kind of questionable and you're not really sure is this going to be a good year or a bad year, people are starting to reallocate their portfolios to things like bonds. Then, you know, private credit also is really attractive. And you have people like KKR and BlackRock, everybody is really doubling down on private credit now. This is kind of like a, a golden period of private credit, a golden age. And so we think this is a great time to be offering private credit to people. And uh, we're going to still be doing it fully on chain. We, we actually, I'd say different than a lot of other places, we want to be focusing actually kind of more away from the crypto native investors into a more mainstream investor. We're going to be trying to take advantage of things like layer twos and account abstraction and embedded wallets to make the experience really, really seamless. And we want to bring that that more kind of normal mainstream investor have them barely even realize they're doing everything fully on chain in a self custodial manner, but get access to this deal that they can't get anywhere else. And so then I think that is that's a good way to bring more people in because again, it's not this thing they can just go on their fidelity account and get. It's something that's that's unique to what we're doing. And also in terms of investors, you know, if we can take capital directly from investors anywhere in the world, there's all sorts of you know payment processor fees that don't have to take place on chain. And then, you know, eventually we can get all these other benefits of interoperability and transparency and stuff that, you know, Robert's been talking about. I want one actual other thing that I, I think might be worth mentioning to our listeners is the private credit market, say in 2022 and 2021, a lot of it was actually serviced by banks like Silicon Valley Bank. And I think like once they had kind of had their explosion in February, it became clear that a lot of these credit opportunities had to be funded by like fully private entities versus like pseudo private entities like a FDI insured bank. And I think like that has contributed to in a way that to the boom. I mean, Blake, yeah, you know, yeah. it seems like that has been like one of the big drivers I've heard of. So that boom is actually, and that, that story you're bringing up with banks, you know, used to doing this lending and sort of receding away from it. That's actually been going on since the financial crisis in 2008. After those uh, new regulations came into place, banks were basically asked to hold on to more cash and more safe assets. And so if you look at like their, their balance sheets, their balance sheets have actually shifted up about 20% in cash and like their lending has kind of gone down, right? And they're just sort of flipping. And so this is, that's like a 
huge amount of money. It's like over a trillion dollars worth of lending that was taking place 10 years ago or 15 years ago and isn't now. And so private credit has been just continuing to fill the gap over the last 15 years. And so you have all these, these different private credit funds and stuff who kind of specialize in the different niches of, okay, I'm going to focus on fintechs in this region. Okay, I'm going to focus on trade finance in this region. And they really learn to understand that, that, that business and that, that industry. And they learn specifics of what kind of stuff they need to put into their loan documents to like make those as safe as possible. And, you know, that is where we've seen this just explosion of private credit. It's really the last 15 years. It's not just the last two, but the last two may have accelerated it. So taking a step back, the real world asset story. When I hear from large institutions, right, whether it's the, the Black Rocks of the world, I mean, you can see in Larry Fink's annual letter, he talks about asset tokenization being a big story. Um, you see it from Goldman Sachs, you see it from uh, Wellington, you see it from, you know, a lot of these really large groups are looking very closely at the idea of bringing real world assets on chain. That said, it's taken a while and, you know, things haven't, you know, we're not, we're not seeing explosive growth. Things are growing and things maybe are going to start working, but we're waiting for that. Um, we're waiting for that moment when this stuff really starts to uh, kick into gear, if and when it does, and let's let's uh, take it for granted for the moment that it does, what does it change? What happens downstream when all of a sudden you have you know, a large private credit market on chain, when all of a sudden you have very large pools of treasuries on chain? What does that change besides the obvious thing of, oh, interest rates on chain go up? What else changes because of that? I think when you're all of a sudden, the, you, know, you have interoperability of these assets, you have a lot more transparency, which should be able to increase the, the accuracy of the pricing that can take place. You know, because historically, if someone's holding on to a private credit asset that's in some random funds book that no one knows, and most of these funds are not, they're not even tech enabled by and large, right? It's not like they're not on chain. They're just like not even on computers, right? They're, they're usually holding documents in some, you know, custody partner that they work with, or they're, you know, holding it themselves. And so I think getting all this stuff on chain is going to like drastically increase the amount of information we have about these loans. So we're able to see the payments coming back from the borrowers, right? And you say, okay, well, yeah, this thing's been paying back all the time. Loan documents can be pointed to through, you know, URLs that you can put on chain, that kind of thing, which should just, I think, really help facilitate these markets. Now, you said before, and I think it's true, it's not like this stuff is going to magically be liquid, right? And, you know, through private credit and real estate, all this stuff is very, very bespoke, right? Like even one house over in the same neighborhood is not the same house. You can't just assume it's the same pricing. But I do think as you bring more of this stuff on chain, you can start having things that are probably built on top to help increase that liquidity, like ratings agencies and things that are looking at stuff and be like, okay, you know, this stuff, it's been underwritten by this team. They're like pretty good. They have this long track record, which we can see this borrower also has a long track record. This other stuff, we can see all this stuff. And, you know, I'm going to call this B grade, whatever, right? And now you, if you can really bring all these different private assets and call it under one risk category, then I think you can actually really legitimately create a lot of liquidity. But I think it, it's going to be a while because this is kind of like multi-step process of we're going to get the stuff on chain. And then once it's on chain, then I think other people can probably build on top these kind of ratings things that can help increase the liquidity. But also just nice stuff around, you know, moving money around quicker if people you know actually send money from one thing to another. Like... One, one thing that was interesting about a recent Goldfinch loan, we did this callable structure with a company in Singapore called FAS. And that callable structure is this thing where investors have the right to call back their capital when, whenever they want to, or, you know, to every quarter. They have like a redemption, right, basically. And for, you know, a regular borrower, that's actually, that's a pretty annoying thing operationally to do if you have lots and lots of investors, right? But because uh, you'd have to have different bank account information from people in different parts of the world and like, how do you handle all that? Who's going to pay for it? But in blockchain world, we tell them, hey, look, it doesn't matter how many investors we end up getting, like one payment to one smart contract every quarter. It's all you need to do. And operationally, that's a much easier lift for them. And that is a, I call it a liquidity enhancing structure. 
that is really only possible through something like the blockchain. And so I think you just get a lot of these nice little benefits that can add up over time. But I also generally view the blockchain as like this, it's a social technology, right? Like it's more powerful than more people who believe in it and more people who are using it. And so it's this slow kind of exponential thing. So we actually start seeing a lot of people use it where that interoperability comes into play. So that's why I think it just, it's surprising all of us at how long it's taken. Mm. It seems like another big difference. So you mentioned, you know, the, the digitizing a lot of these businesses, kind of pulling them forward into the 21st century, let's say, same time making things more trustworthy, making things more transparent, making things, you know, always online and very easy to execute for just trusting the cash flows of these businesses that otherwise would be very difficult to underwrite. Another thing that seems to me to be a direct consequence of getting more real assets on chain is a different class of consumer coming on chain than who's there today. Today, most of the people who are on chain are speculators, um, just by just by volume. Obviously, there's some people who are on chain because they want to just hold some USDC and they want to have some safe assets, or they want to hold some Bitcoin and they're not they're not really speculating per se. Um, but a lot of the people who came on chain over the last few years are basically there to gamble, and having a set of users who are there to make more or less sound financial decisions and basically save for the real world really changes the kinds of products that we can start offering on chain and actually get adoption with. And how, how do you guys think about that? Uh, I'll say, I, I think a, a thousand percent. And this is a, a big reason as well as why we are make, trying to make this shift, really increase the the user experience so that we can go after this mainstream audience that you're talking about. Because the DGENs who are on there today, they want 10 to 15% like a day, right? And like fundamentally the product we're offering is 10 to 15% a year, right? And so like, you know, we just can't sell to those people. And so we have to sell to a more mainstream investor who wants to make these sound financial decisions. As, as you were saying, we want to give them the opportunity to do so, but we want to do it on chains. We want to be building this whole platform for the future where we see everything headed. Robert, what's your, what's your take on that? What do you think changes when you start getting more kind of risk averse investors coming on chain? Well, I think what winds up happening is it winds up being a more permanent like overall financial marketplace when there's many different types of customers, many different types of investors, many different types of end users, all looking for different things, right? Like the more use cases and the more sort of like end users in one place, the better and the more things are just going to like happen and the more like connections get made and like products evolve and like the assets evolve as well. You know, so I think increasing the diversity of end users is only going to be a good thing. Right. Like, because, you know, they'll stick around and do something different and like they'll use another product and they'll put money somewhere else and they'll reinvest something and blah, 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 blah. And it all compounds. And so the long term outcome is just going to be like, you know, I, I think of like 15 years and I'm, I'm really bad at this because I used to think, you know, we'd have all the real world assets on chain <laughs> right now. So I'm totally wrong. But I think in like 15 years, you know, it'll just be like, oh, everything is here. Right. It's just like, Wall Street 3, you know, it's just like on chain is just where things operate and, you know, they don't operate on the paper and pencil way anymore. They just operate here. Yeah, I think it also, it'll decrease the volatility of the space substantially. Because as, as Robert's saying, when you have this diversity of use cases and people doing it for different reasons, then, okay, well, just because you know, XYZ tokens aren't doing well anymore, it's risk off. That doesn't mean you leave crypto land, right? You stay on because, oh, well, now I can get private credit. Now I can get treasury yields. Now I can hopefully eventually get, you know, public equities and, and things like that. I think it'll just really decrease the volatility, make it more of a real economy. Yeah, I think, I think like to this point earlier about the, that you were talking about treasuries of like, oh, why wouldn't I just leave crypto and go buy it? If the rebalancing cost is just so low 
to do it without leaving, like then you won't leave, right? Like people will just and, and I think that that gets to this this point Blake's making. It's like <laughs> transaction costs for this stuff are not zero. Especially for the especially for the like kind of not degen stuff in the sense that I, I in, in the back of my mind I'm like, oh that's also what casinos say of like cheap drinks to keep you in the casino. <laughs> it's like all look that's know, human for nature. the real money makers, which is get you to buy JPEGs. That's human nature, though. That's like that's uh-huh. not a. I think that casinos it, just make it. it more in your face. Of course, so Robert, Robert, and Blake are the bartenders who are keeping everybody, uh, keeping everybody past midnight. Yeah, I, I was going to say. I, I think that the uh, the two approaches, like Robert and what, what we're doing, they 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 come together. They really are, are complementary in the sense that, like, you know, if we're bringing someone on to do private credit, some of their portfolio, they may want to say, "Hey, I've got some dry powder. What do I do with this before the next investment?" Well, maybe they're investing in T-bills. Maybe they're, you know, through, through Superstate, right? And that's a, that's a really good combo, right? We want to be able to- That's made that. in heaven, Blake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> made in heaven. So they're not, they're not buying any JPEGs is what you're telling me. Well, not, not the rest. All right. All right. All right. All right. Um, I, 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 I mean, to, to be fair, one of the funniest tweets I saw this week was someone complaining about how people aren't trying to acquire failed NFT projects and like they, they they have no exits and it's like what what were you thinking obviously there's no exit. like what are they buying the discord <laughs> like you're talking about selling the issuers or selling the collections i think it's like the issuers had technically had companies that receive the eth or multisigs that receive the eth and they want to like sell whatever they think they are the nft holders do or the owners of the projects do owners of the projects like, like there were just people lamenting, like, there's no M&A for NFT projects. And I was like, what are you talking about? So if somebody makes, like, sad apes, right? And, like, obviously it's some, like, knockoff and nobody wants it. The sad ape owner is looking for somebody to take over the sad ape project that has yes. already fizzled out. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, weird. <laughs> this is a very weird industry. Um, I, so just one more thing that I wanted to touch on. Um, so you guys were talking about, okay, you know, we're starting with tokenized credit, private credit, or sorry, tokenized uh, treasuries, private credit, you know, maybe eventually we'll get to public equities. I I was, I was just thinking of mirror. So, uh, for those of you who don't know, mirror was, uh, one of the projects in the Terra ecosystem was basically like the, you know, basically building perps on, uh, uh, you know, us treasuries and this was a meme for a long time. And something that we, we took a lot of interest in is this idea that look, look, if you if you take these you know um, delta one derivatives that people love in crypto and you just wrap them around traditional assets, you can basically create synthetic forms of just about anything as long as you have a price feed. And um, you can do it for Bitcoin, obviously, with a perp, but you can uh, with a perpetual swap. But you can do it for any asset so long as you have an index. And uh, there was there was a moment when some of these things were getting some traction, or people were excited about synthetics, people were excited about mirror, um, and they all kind of fizzled out. And it does seem like. This is probably the best theory for why, which is that there was nobody on chain who actually wanted to make sound financial decisions. And that basically the part of your portfolio that you were acting like an adult with, you were not bringing on chain. You were keeping that in your brokerage account or whatever. And the stuff you bring on chain, you're like, hey, yo, I'm here to gamble. I'm here to farm. I'm here to do whatever. Uh, but I'm not here to you know, buy some Apple stock and you know, hope that the, the Oracle works. Yeah, it's sort of the, I totally agree. I think it's also sort of the same reason why we haven't seen like on-chain index funds work. It's like no one's trying to diversify their portfolio on chain. They're trying to go go 100x long Pepe. Like it's just a very different know. sort of mindset. They diversify <laughs> with apes and miladies. 
Right, right. Ah, ah, true, true. Which actually is where that 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 diversification actually may have worked out. What what yeah, what barbell. is the uh, what is the sixty forty portfolio of NFTs? Apes and Miladies. Apes and Miladies. That is that is absolutely correct. You th- no, but what ratio? What ratio? No, I, I, you still have you have to come up sixty forty sixty ape forty Milady. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, you might be 80-20 the opposite direction now. I don't know. I don't know if that uh, used to fall in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Auto-rebalancing. Auto-rebalancing. Um, okay, there's there's one more story I wanted to cover today. Um, so there's a there's a company called Arkham, which is kind of a blockchain intelligence company. They, you know, they do kind of a bunch of data that you can see about what's happening on the blockchain. And so they had a token launch. They're launching a token, which I had not realized that they uh, have a need for a token, but apparently they do. So uh, they're launching a token, I think, on Binance Launchpad or something. And uh, this token, well, first there was some kerfuffle because um, they have some referral program where you can like post a link to like, hey, sign up for Arkham with my referral link. And this referral link was a base 64 encoded version of your email, like your raw email. So people could just read each other's emails uh, by, from posting these referral links, which was hilarious. They eventually fixed it. Um, but that, that's just funny. Um, but the product itself, the product for which this token is being uh, created, is basically a kind of communal tagging system where you can, I don't, I don't know what the token mechanics are, but more or less, you know, you stake something and you're like, ah, this person, cor- this address corresponds to this real world person. And I'm staking this amount of risk on it. And it's basically like a crowdsourced tagging, you know, who is who, you know, wh- how do real world, ass- uh, real world identities correspond to on-chain addresses system. Um, and a lot of people got upset about this because they're like, hey, this seems like basically a kind of incentivized de-anonymization network. This is like, this is bad. This is going against the crypto ethos of allowing people to maintain their anonymity if they so choose. Um, curious to get thoughts from the panel on, is this good? Is this bad? Is this part of growing up as an industry that like, hey, you know, I mean, obviously Etherscan has this tagging mechanism and there's Nansen that has, you know, it's not as though these things don't exist somewhere, but it does seem to rub people the wrong way of like, hey, I'm just going to like pay people. I'm just going to crowdsource it from people and pay anyone to claim that this person corresponds to this address. What do, you, what do you guys think about this? I just think it's a faulty mechanism. Like what's stopping me from going out and getting a couple tokens and saying that 0x1234 is Hasib, you know, and just, I don't care about learn, losing or burning my tokens. Like it's a, troll against a seed, you know? So, you know, who would have thought the Oracle problem was hard to solve? Yeah. Who would have thought that this was a <laughs> difficult thing? I may have heard of this. I may have heard of this. Well, and I, I, I'm, I'm kind of inventing the token mechanics. I don't actually know if this is how it works. This is how I assume it works. I can't imagine how else it would work, but yeah. You know, like token but, registry thing. People are like staking on these facts. Token, so. We do not speak of token registries. That, that is, <laughs> this, is, uh, this is like an auger throwback, really. You know, it's like you, you stake the token, you have disputes, no, you have like, like escalation like game. Story. This is like true yeah, story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, you are you are completely right. This uh, presumably it would be the same mechanic. Now, again, I I have not actually read the thing, and I just heard we just heard about another podcast that was sued for um, not correctly reporting a story. So I'm going to caveat what we say very clearly is that I have not read the token mechanics, so it could work in a totally different way. So please, Arkham, please don't sue us. Uh, although it's, it, it is, it is. I will also say it's a very shadowy name for a company that makes me afraid of lawsuits. It's still trust. I'll say that it's with Arkham is the name of the insane asylum from Batman. Isn't it the name of the, no? The Gotham is the name of the city. Um, oh, we got yeah, the name yeah, of the yeah, city, right. but Arkham is the name of the insane asylum. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
I don't know. I, uh, uh, I, they issued a uh, like a statement today or yesterday, and there was this other sort of funny meme meme running around where people were looking up the founder on on LinkedIn, and like he had you know his his, his past history, and then he had, like one interest, like one thing he was interested in on LinkedIn, and it was the CIA. And then everyone um, <laughs> in their in their uh, statement today, they had a section that was, that was like are you like the FBI or the CIA? And they're like, no, we are not. We are like not associated with any law enforcement. And I'm like, I feel like your company is really not going well. And you have to, when you have to specify that, and, you know, in public, like <laughs> we are not, not, you're not a government project. Yeah. Are you the cops? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. That's a, I mean, I, I mean, you get us flipping around. Why are people having to ask? Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. Um, so is so I think we're all on board with like we don't think this is going to work. Let's say there was a version of this that did work, uh, or that was a a trustworthy repository of addresses. I mean, look, regardless of whether or not this Arkham system works, EtherScan does this, Nansen does this. Is this good to encourage this to reinforce it? What, what do you guys think about these kind of uh, address registries? What, what about, there's also Ethereum uh, attribution system EAS. Which I, I believe a number of people, uh, I, I know for sure, why well, I'm not sure, I'm just saying a, a large company is, is working on building something to help do their own attributions um, or attestations. Sorry, attestations is the word I'm, I mean to be saying, the Ethereum attestation system. Uh, that's like an open standard. I think a bunch of large companies are going to be doing that, which sounds, I'd say, better than any sort of token staking mechanism, right? I, I honestly would probably just prefer to trust some large company who has a reputation at stake, which is actually something really valuable for them rather than these tokens, which will fluctuate in value wildly. And, you know, well, but that's a, that's a self-attestation, right? That's like saying, this is my, I'm Coinbase, this is my address, correct? It would be like Coinbase saying, this uh, this is this person's address, or this person has been KYC. Oh, for third party. Or, I see, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. Third party okay. giving attestations about someone else, which is what I assume Arkham was trying to do here, like someone else is staking, telling, I have to yeah. I, I like, I understand some of the motivation. I think it's maybe not as nefarious as people assume it is very laborious and manual to actually like tag a bunch of the, you know, market maker wallets and some of the exchange wallets. And you can do some, you know, basic heuristics to sort of identify them. But like, you know, someone has to go there and and go through every, all these things. And like, it's not always gonna be hundred percent accurate. And so I think part of their thinking, and I think Arkham basically tries to compete with Nansen and sort of being this token on chain intelligence platform hey, what if we can bootstrap our own, you know, data set? And in, instead, I think it is obviously can, can be used this way, but I think it's also been sort of presented as uh, it's a, you know, doxing, uh, doc to earn platform, um, which well, I think... Well, doesn't the white paper start off with the sentence, the inevitable end of blockchain is to have everyone doxed or something? Like, like it has some ridiculous, something that sounds like it's out of like Peter Thiel meets Batman fan fiction that like, I don't, I don't... Wow, that is, that is pretty dark. The white paper is just so so. They're really living up to the like, name. It was just like written by someone who like seems a bit like lacking any form of social empathy with any other human on the planet. <laughs> Ouch! <laughs> Too many years in Gotham City will do that to you, man. It wears you down. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Robert, was there something you want to add? I was just going to say they're clearly playing up that like dystopian fan fiction element. They're they're feeding off of that for their own brand and their own energy and stuff. Yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, either way. Well, uh, let's let's hope that they manage to uh, get this register. I mean, I don't actually know what I hope. I don't know <laughs> what the registry to work or to not work is. is kind Wait, of unclear. Here, here, here's the here, here's the phrase: de-anonymization is destiny. That was like when I saw that. Wow. I that. Wow. 
<laughs> that's a that's a very good tagline for the CIA. Yeah, it's like a bad it, it, it's like everything they write just you know seems to just be like you know I could have trained chat I could have asked ChatGPT to write what would Peter Thiel say about blockchain data and monitoring people and like it would have come up with this. I feel like DARPA must have like been their lead investor or something. This it's a little too it's a little too on the nose. <laughs> Um, anyway, all right. Before we before we get sued, we have to we have to wrap the show. <laughs> to be clear, these are all the, we have no idea what's going on, so don't take anything seriously. <laughs> Let's go ahead and wrap. Uh, Blake, thanks for coming on the show. It was great to hear about what's going on at Goldfinch. Thanks so and, much for having uh, me. Wish you wish you all the best. And thanks, uh, and Robert, congrats on the launch of Superstate. Anybody who has money, put it in. Uh, this is not investment advice, but you should absolutely <laughs> maybe if it's appropriate for your portfolio. You should you should buy tokenized treasuries. I, I, I uh, love I love the descending sequence of disclaimers. That was like the best part of that. <laughs> I'm getting better at this. I'm getting better at this. My 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 um yeah, my my ability to disclaim as something as soon as I say it is uh being in this industry, you you get you get on top of it. Anyway, all right, we gotta wrap. Thank you everybody. See you next week. Hello.